This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. A warm welcome to First Move. Great to have you with us this Wednesday. And what a week so far. Congress probing the Silicon Valley bank collapse cause. Lawmakers blaming bank management and regulatory flaws. Taiwan's president visits North America, giving China more diplomatic pause. And a tech triumph, Alibaba's six-way split gets investors applause. Meanwhile, global stocks are higher after Tuesday's snores. That means no change. U.S. futures in the meantime higher and Europe, as you can see in the green to the Cacaron over in France, the outperformer. UBS is contributing, though, to sentiment after announcing the return of former CEO Sergio Amotti. He presided over UBS's own crisis recovery after the rogue trader scandal, if you remember, back in 2011. And he is now going to be the man to oversee the Credit Suisse consolidation. But of course, beware the ghosts of Credit Suisse scandals of the past. A new U.S. Senate report says the firm continues to help wealthy investors evade taxes. The very latest on that report just ahead. Chinese tech out on top in Asia in the meantime after the Alibaba split announcement with the Hang Seng jumping more than 2%. Lots of talk over whether a less imposing sizable Alibaba will become a less enticing Chinese regulatory target. Also, as we discussed on the show yesterday, might an Alibaba breakup trigger an Ant Group IPO makeup? The Chinese government has already given tentative approval for the offering after putting the kibosh on it more than two years ago. Alibaba, of course, owns more than 30 percent of Ant Financial. Now from fintech to finput in check. Hearings into the recent U.S. bank failures continues today in Washington, D.C. Fed Vice Chair Michael Barr bashing Silicon Valley bank officials Tuesday, calling the collapse of the institution a textbook case of mismanagement, though admittedly he also came under fire himself. We've got all the details coming up. And later in the programme, we'll talk with the CEO of payment firm Chipper Cash about the new reality for tech startups in a tighter lending environment. The capital management arm of Silicon Valley Bank is also an investor in Chipper. So plenty to talk about on that. But first, after the shotgun wedding of UBS and Credit Suisse, UBS is getting engaged again. This time with an old flame. Former CEO Sergio Amotti will take over the reins of the bank again next month. The bank said its current CEO, Ralph Hammers, agreed to step down to serve the interests of the new combination, the Swiss financial sector and the nation. But the problems keep piling up for Credit Suisse. And as I mentioned in the last few hours, a U.S. Senate Finance Committee investigation has concluded the Swiss bank is complicit in ongoing tax evasion by super wealthy Americans. Claire Sebastian joins us on this. Claire, this was something that we learned, I think, from bank consolidation during the financial crisis, that you can absorb a bank, but you also have to absorb their legal liabilities along with it. What more do we know about this investigation and the potential consequences for Credit Suisse and therefore UBS? Yeah, an unfortunate uh, welcome back to the job, although he officially starts next month for Sergio. 
Uh, Amati, this relates to a plea deal, a guilty plea that Credit Suisse made in 2014, pleading guilty essentially uh, to helping wealthy Americans evade taxes by hiding their wealth overseas. The plea deal meant that they could keep their U.S. banking license. But this two-year investigation by the Senate committee found that essentially they have kept doing it uh, to the tune, they say, uh, of around $700 million found uh, in undeclared accounts, including $100 million in what they say is an ongoing, previously unknown and potentially criminal conspiracy involving the failure to disclose uh, nearly $100 million owned by one family in secret offshore accounts. And Senator Ron Wyden, who leads this committee, did not pull his punches. Look at this quote. Uh, he says, at the centre of this investigation are greedy Swiss bankers and catnapping government regulators. And the result appears to be a massive ongoing conspiracy to help ultra-wealthy US citizens to evade taxes and rip off their fellow Americans. They also say that this was because of lax oversight. He says catnapping uh, government regulators, lax oversight by the Department of Justice. Credit Suisse, though, says that it is cooperating with the U.S. authorities. Its policy uh, is to close undeclared accounts when they are discovered. Uh, but, of course, this does mean that, that Credit Suisse, which is now to be swallowed up by the end of the year by UBS, that they will assume this liability as well. We don't yet know exactly what kind of penalties uh, they could face over this. But, as I say, they are cooperating with the U.S. authorities, Julian. Yeah, just quite frankly, add it to the list. Claire, at this stage for uh, Sergio Amotti, but he did guide the bank for, what, nine years, from 2011 to 2020. He understands what rebuilding culture, I think, requires and was very successful at UBS. I think he's perceived to be a safe pair of hands and, oh boy, do they need some. Yeah, I mean, look, I think the most striking comments that came out of the press conference that they held today came from the chairman of UBS, Colm Keller, who said, look, this is about this isn't about whether Ralph Hammers, the, the current CEO, can do a good job. They said he could get the job done. This is about finding the very best person for this because of the scale of the task at hand. He said this isn't just the biggest transaction of its kind since 2008. This is this is bigger even than what we saw back then. This is two of the world's biggest banks combining. He said that this involves uh, really sort of unprecedented an unprecedented amount of financial engineering which comes with he said significant execution risk i think it's telling uh that the statement says that ralph hammers is stepping down not just for the good of the company but for the good of the country that is how uh they view this and sergio amotti for his part saying that he felt that he had a duty to take this on julia so, so that is really why a couple of weeks or even less into into looking at this deal they are realizing just the scale of the task at hand yeah, not the end of this conversation, certainly. Claire Sebastian, thank you for that. Now, new tensions over Taiwan. China voicing concern as the Taiwanese president, Tsai Ing-wen, heads to New York. It is not the Chinese side that overreacts, but the U.S. side that keeps conniving to support Taiwan independent separatist forces. And just to be clear, the president will merely transit through New York before heading to Central America for diplomatic talks. She is, however, scheduled to meet with U.S. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy in Los Angeles on her way back to Taiwan. Mark Stewart joins us on this. Mark, you and I often talk about the optics of this. I do sort of feel some mirroring here in the same way that uh, President Xi went to Russia and said, look, we're not going to be influenced by other nations' views on how we behave. feels like similar treatment from the uh, Taiwanese president, too. 
Indeed, Julia, there's no question that Taiwan operates as an independent actor. It, it always does what it wants to do, at least in most cases. Yet there is still some caution over this trans-Pacific trip, if you will. For example, Taiwan has not acknowledged or confirmed that any kind of meeting will take place between President Tsai and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. In addition, a lot of caution is being used in, in language not to describe this potential meeting as an official diplomatic visit or an official visit because the U.S. and Taiwan do not have diplomatic ties as, as we see in the global arena. Uh, yet there is a lot of conversation. It's coming from Beijing, as you just reported, but also from Taiwan. Take a listen to President Tsai uh, speaking uh, from Taipei in anticipation of this trip. External pressure won't stop our determination from moving towards the international society. We're calm, confident, uncompromising and unprovocative. It is not this trip it's not only this trip to North America that is making news, which again is being described as a transit point. The, president, uh, the president's trip to Central America is also very significant. There will be meetings with a number of, of nations in Central America because Taiwan clearly feels a need to have allies around the world. And Julia, we can't dismiss what happened last week when Honduras cut ties with Taiwan and instead created a relationship with Beijing. So there's no question. It's a very fragile. It's a fragile moment uh, with the rest of the world looking at Asia. Yeah, a fragile moment among many. Mark Stewart, thank you so much for that. I want to speak with him. Ukrainian President Zelensky inviting Chinese leader Xi Jinping to visit his country for talks. Those comments made during an interview with the Associated Press. Just last week, she made a state visit to Russia, as I just mentioned, meeting with Vladimir Putin. And in the meantime, the head of Russia's Wagner mercenary group admitting the battle in Bakhmut has, quote, battered his military group. Ben Weidman joins us from eastern Ukraine. Ben, I want to start there, actually, because the head or the chief of a Wagner group saying and talking about the symbolism of that fight in Bakhmut and the important historical role that his group is playing, sort of echoing what President Zelensky said about the importance of this battle for what comes next. Well, certainly both sides, uh, Julia, have invested a lot in terms of blood into this battle that's been going on for seven months. Now, yesterday, the head of Ukrainian land forces said that their tactic in Bakhmut is to try to destroy as much as the enemy as possible in preparation for a possible offensive. Now, Evgeny Prigozhin, the head of the Wagner group, he did say that their group had been battered. The Wagner group had been battered in Bakhmut, but he also added uh, that they had battered the Ukrainians as well. And since the 21st of February, that has been, Bakhmut has been off limits to journalists. I spent much of January uh, there and we had a pretty good idea of what was going on. But since then, uh, it's sort of a black hole. We don't know what's going on. We're dependent upon uh, what little information is actually coming out of there. But it does appear that both sides are taking very heavy casualties at this point, and it's not clear, for instance, the Ukrainians are saying that their lines have been stabilized. Ben, I'm just going to interrupt uh, you. This uh, comes after me, several because weeks. Because we are seeing images of uh, King Charles progress. approaching the Brandenburg Gate, of course, meeting the German president. Thank you, 
Ben for that. As you can see there, King Charles, Queen Consort Camilla, beautiful blue dress, meeting with the President of Germany, President Steinmeier and his wife, Elke Budenbender there. Smiles and handshakes. You can see the security and hear the sirens, of course. Lots of people around and the famous Brandenburg gates just in the shot there. I can just see gently. The car's now driving away. A very important meeting, part of a three-day tour, of course, beginning in Germany, having uh, bypassed the French part of this due to the pension strikes. Just going to take a walk now. I think Max. Uh, I think I've got Max Foster here, of course, who's um, travelling with King Charles and Queen Consort Camilla as well, just standing by, I think, now for uh, photographs. But I think, Max, the obvious thing to point out here is the broad smiles and the handshakes, a, a very welcome greeting. Yeah, it's, um, it's a big operation they've put on here. This is the first official state visit by the king anywhere in the world. Of course, he was due to go to France early in this week, but that had to all be cancelled because of the demonstration. So this uh, becomes the first official state visit of King Charles's reign. And we are here uh, by the Brandenburg Gate, uh, another piece of history. This is the first time, we think, since the Second World War, that there has been a full ceremonial welcome of any head of state here at the Brandenburg Gate. So it is, uh, you know, history playing out here right now and uh, the couple over there with the president and his wife in yes, front of the cameras but then they're going to come down here to the red carpet and inspect the guard of honor so he's on his way over here now uh, he's here until friday uh, king charles and uh, the queen consort as well uh, camilla um, a country that they have deep ties with but it's always the the government the foreign office that leads these events and it's interesting that they chose france and germany as the first two countries uh, post-Brexit, of course, to try to, you know, use the diplomatic power of the royal family to perhaps build those relationships after a pretty fraught period uh, under Boris Johnson, of course. So Charles is about to head over, Julia, and uh, inspect the Guard of Honour. Yeah, full military honours, the welcome there to your point too. And yes, there at the behest of the government, as important as it is to see King Charles on his first official state visit, of course, since becoming king as well. Can you talk us through... Not only what we're seeing now, and it's actually quite nice to see all those flags being waved in the background. Look at that, all the German flags and the, the Union Jacks as well. But what we're going to go on to see later today as well, a full state banquet as well. To, as you pointed out, this really is rolling out the red carpet for, uh, for the British King. Uh, it really is. Yeah, and a meeting at the presidential palace as well, and then a series of engagements where they try to tie in what the German government wants, what the British government wants, but also what uh, King Charles wants as well, and uh, the Duchess as well, the Queen Consort as she is now. Uh, so there's a series of engagements taking an environment, as you'd expect, also a Ukrainian refugee centre over the next couple of days, really recognising what Germany is doing to support Ukraine militarily and in terms of humanitarian work, and then taking in a lot of the cultural aspects of the country as well. Uh, these photos uh, will go down immediately into history. This video will go down into history as the first uh, state visit. And these, uh, these moments really reflect uh, the British-German relationship as much as anything else. But across all of this, of course, the relationship with the European Union as well, which is something I know the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom wants to deepen ties on. And this is a key relationship and part of that uh, process as well. Uh, you saw how Ursula von der Leyen was afforded uh, 
a meeting with King Charles when she went over to the UK. She's not a head of state. That was a special honour. This is very much what Rishi Sunak wants to promote as a deep and lasting relationship between the UK and Germany post-Brexit. Uh, yeah. The national anthem now playing for the United Kingdom here by the German band. Just wrapping up the two national anthems there in Berlin. I don't think we can underscore enough the importance of the imagery of seeing that famous landmark and the Brandenburg Gates that you were just looking at there, a symbol of the country's divisions, of course, during the Cold War and the subsequent unification in October of 1990. And Max, to your point, I think this is a chance to renew ties, to renew partnerships, to discuss what the relationship between the two nations looks like post-Brexit and uh, the United Kingdom, of course, leaving the European Union. It is a, a very important moment. Uh, it really is. And to underscore that, really, even on the way in, I flew in on the King's aircraft and we were accompanied by German fighter jets as we came in, which is something I've never seen before. And that's an honour that the Germans wanted to bestow on the King as he came in. Of course, there are family links between the British royal family uh, as well. Queen Victoria's, um, uh, Queen Victoria's husband was, of course, German. There's German blood in these veins. And uh, Prince Philip had lots of family here as well. Uh, the last time I was here with the royal family was with the Queen and Prince Philip. Um, and there are many parallels between this visit and that one. Uh, so that was her last uh, state visit. This is King Charles's first state visit. So interesting that it's all playing out um, here in Germany today. You can see there the King and the President, the two heads of state on the red carpet uh, right behind me, uh, taking the, the guard of honour. Um, and, uh, you know, big smiles on everyone's faces. I think everyone is very pleased with 
how everything's playing out today. Uh, I can't tell you how many notes I've got, uh, intricate notes, uh, Julia, from both the German side and the British side about every single detail of this trip. A huge amount of work over a period of months. And there was a last minute jig, of course, because the first leg of this European tour to France had to be uh, cancelled uh, on Mr. Macron's um, advice. Uh, the king going up there to meet a group of German well-wishers, a lot of them with German flags, but a lot of them with British flags as well. Um, so interesting to see who's in the crowd and what he'll be saying to them on his first visit here as king. Yes, as you point out, a false start, but now we're well underway and uh, a jolly feel, I think, a positive feel to this meeting too and, uh, and plenty of smiles. Max, uh, we will leave you there as he's uh, greeting well wishes and the flags are, are waving and we'll come back to you later on in the show. For now, Max Foster, thank you for that. And that is the British monarch. King Charles there, meeting well wishes over in Berlin. And we will take you back there later on in the show. For now, we're back after this. Welcome back to First Move. With a change at the top, is ride-hailing firm Lyft ready to change gear? Investors certainly hope it has the ability to close the gap with Uber in the ride-hailing stakes. After going public back in 2019, Lyft has struggled to recover from a pandemic slump, and it's also lost ground to its bigger rival. Despite cost-cutting, it's failed to turn a profit with projections this year below expectations. Well, strapping himself into the driving seat is incoming CEO David Risher. He started at Microsoft, went on to become one of Amazon's first employees as head of product, and 13 years ago founded a non-profit to improve child literacy. And he joins us now. David, I tell you what, you've been, you've been pretty busy. Um, welcome to the show. You've been on the Lyft board. <laughs> it's great to be here. Welcome. You've been on the, the Lyft board, I believe, since 2021. What do you think is the most fundamental misunderstanding of Lyft's potential by investors today? Well, I think Lyft has enormous potential. And at the end of the day, it's because we're really good at what we do. You know, over a third of the American population has taken a Lyft since its founding about 15 years ago. Every single week, hundreds of thousands of drivers, people make billions of dollars on the platform. And so it's a very, very strong and successful uh, service. And it's great for customers. It picks you up on time. We're competitive on price and so forth. So I think there's enormous upside. Uh, I just think people have gotten a little distracted by sort of a, the particular competitive dynamic we're in uh, rather than thinking about the potential of the whole sector. Yeah, we'll come back to that. I think one of the obvious things you ask when it's founders handing over um, their baby to a new person, you ask how involved they're going to be, how much free reign are you going to have? So I guess that's my first question, David. Do you have free reign to make even the toughest of decisions if necessary? I do. I do. And I can tell John and Logan are very sincere about that. They've been incredibly uh, supportive. But at the same time, they're super clear. You know, their best move right now is to give me the space I need and to give the company the space it needs to really move forward, become a great, profitable company. We'll go to the end and work backwards. Um, You've ruled out a sale. Even if that's what ultimately is best for shareholders, can I ask if it's even been discussed at this stage as a potential option? And I know you're not in there yet. (laughs) I'm not, and I appreciate that's That's a great point. Yeah, it's not so much that I've ruled it out. I simply said it's not our focus. Our focus is on making sure that we provide a great customer experience. Uh, we also have to provide a great experience for our shareholders. I'm very aware of that. So, of course, 
look, our shares are available on the NASDAQ every day. <laughs> you know, they're sort of on sale right now, you might say. But but our focus isn't so much on on that. It's really on on customers right now and building a great profitable business for the long term. You know, and I, I sort of read between the lines on um, all the analyst notes that, that flow out on this. And, and most frequently what I see is that you need to cut costs, you need to improve profitability or focus on profitability. But you also at the same time need to improve pricing for customers and attract more drivers. And I, I sort of look at those two things and I say they're sort of diametrically opposed. How do you achieve all of those things? I think you focus. I think you focus. We had an all-employee meeting yesterday and there was so much energy in the room. But there were questions around costs. And we said, look, we have to be careful with costs. It's We're not alone in this, but we in particular need to be very, very careful that we're spending our money well. And that's something I learned at World Reader. It's sort of funny, but in the nonprofit world, you try to take on huge problems with very small budgets. And we've done a good job of that. And we'll do a good job here at Lyft so that we can pass that right back to drivers and to passengers. How do you increase market share without buying it? So I think the first thing you do is you remind people you're a good option. And it sounds maybe a little funny, but I think it's really important. The world has gotten to a point through, you know, a number of years and, and different you know, steps along the way of almost feeling like Uber is the default. And I recognize that. So we've got to fight really hard to remind people why Lyft, to pick people up on time, to give them a competitive price, to make sure they get where they're going, do all the basics right. And I think if you see you know, markets like that, where there are two players, you often see sort of a shift in share over time. You know, uh, a funny example is, you know, the SAT and the ACT here in the United States, for those of you who have uh, kids going through that, you know, these things tend to shift over time. And I think customers and drivers really want the choice. So we're here to remind them they've got a great choice in Lyft and we're going to make the experience better over time. I think you make a great point about the default being Uber, simply because people forget that there's an alternative option. But when I've seen one estimate of the market share at 74% to, to Uber, uh, 26% to Lyft, it's sort of more of a landslide. And I, I guess to go back to the question again, how do you um, bring down wait times if you're not attracting drivers because they have an alternative option? And how do you attract customers if perhaps the alternative option is cheaper too? It's sort of... It's it's a circular argument, but it sort of goes back to the first one I asked without spending yeah, more money no, I, doing it. Well, no, and it's a great point. But the, the nice thing about that circle is it can kind of unwind and go the other direction, too. If we focus on customers, if we focus on providing a great service and really focus on it, and I understand that sounds a little generic, but there's a lot of work we can do with that laser focus on that one person who wants to get picked up right now at you know 640 in the morning. If we focus on that one person and make sure that driver is getting paid fairly and well, that tends to take care of itself. As long as people remember that Lyft is a great option. So to a certain extent, and I know it's a little repetitive, but it's focus on those basics with such laser precision, not get distracted by delivering pizzas or packages or all sorts of other things that, that other companies are doing. Really focus on that. I've got a lot of optimism. And then over time, you'll see us differentiate in different ways. Do you reserve the right to change your mind? on the diversification options. Yeah. Well, yeah, of course, never say never. And, and I do. But I will tell you that if you have a business model that competes with what customers want, you often find that the business model wins and, and, and in this case, riders lose. So, for example, you know, I don't really want to get in the same car that, you know, just delivered the tuna sandwich. And if you talk to drivers, they say, gosh, I don't make as much in food delivery and it's more frustrating. I get tickets when I'm double parked in front of the, the restaurant and so forth. So, you know, I think that, that Uber has its challenges too. I really do. And while, you know, 
obviously the situation right now is one where we've got to fight really hard to be a strong number two and maybe even better than that someday. I think they're going to have some challenges on their hands too. Um, there are so many great points now, and I completely agree with you on the tuna sandwich um, point, by the way. Um, but I'd love, I'd, love, I'd love your opinion on whether you think the business model works. I mean, I know we're and you're sort of reluctant to keep making this comparison because Lyft stands in its own right relative to, to Uber. But, you know, Uber's being celebrated now and it's approaching profitability. I just wonder whether whether you fundamentally believe as great as it is for the consumer and for drivers, perhaps that are making money for this, um, the facility to have ride hailing, whether the, the business model actually works unless it's a monopoly. Um, well, I don't think any of us should be hoping that a monopoly is the way this ends out. You know, I, I think it's not good for customers. It's not good for drivers. So in a sense, you know, I'll put it this way. I think it has to work. And, I, and it's my number. It's my only focus. And let's be clear. I really only get paid. And, and you know, if it, if it does and our shareholders get a great return at that point. So, you know, I understand your question. Uh, it's reasonable to, to sort of speculate about this. But, you know, if one company can make it work and if you're if you're saying what's required to make it work is monopoly pricing. I don't think that's that's where anyone wants to end up. Uh, but I, I also don't accept that. I think it, it's going to be a, a great two uh, two service world. Yeah, I mean, you have to encourage more people to use ride hailing, and you have to encourage more drivers. Everybody can benefit if the, the whole pie is bigger. I, I guess is the answer. Um, David, well, um, right. you can use that. <laughs> yeah, well, I appreciate that. <laughs> well, and look, there's so many more people who want to use this. Right, we're we're kind of out of COVID. We're coming back to work. We're going to the movies. So let's not forget. Also, you know, there was a certain trajectory pre-COVID, and then obviously momentum shifted, and so on and so forth. But think about in the biggest picture where the magic happens. It's when we all get together. I think that's actually a real purpose that companies like ours can uh, can help with, and and it will over time expand the market. There's just no doubt. Um, and David, I've run out of time, but I, I did want to um, make the point that I know you got a sign-on bonus and the vast majority of it um, you gave to World Reader, which is this um, child literacy a nonprofit that, that you founded. Um, so I wanted people to understand that, that um, not about the split focus, but about the focus on um, very important other things going on in the world. David, please come back and talk again soon. You're going to have a fun time, I think. <laughs> Thank you so much. Really enjoying it. Thank you so much. We're going to make a Thank great you. company. I appreciate all your questions. Thank you. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stock markets are open for business this Wednesday, and it's a positive start. Take a look at that. Fresh comments from chipmaker Micron Technologies helping the mood in the tech sector, too. It says major customers are finally in the process of reducing chip inventories. Positive for their business. Bitcoin, also resilient, currently up some 4% to over $28,000 per Bitcoin. Investors currently shrugging off U.S. regulatory action against crypto exchange giant Binance. They're eyeing regulation on mainstream banks, I think. Uh, As a result, the effects of strike action in the meantime continue to plague the European airline sector. It's one of a series of headaches facing CEOs and policymakers who've gathered in Brussels for the Airlines for Europe summit. So what can European holidaymakers expect this year? Well, Richard Quest is at the summit and he's been talking to top CEOs today. Richard, always fantastic to have you on the show. I think uh, I was just looking at the potential strike action over the Easter holidays and I think holidaymakers have to be prepared to swim or drive based on what I saw. Oh, 
Absolutely. I think it's going to be a it's going to be a difficult year, but it's going to be much better than last year. Behind me is the Airlines for Europe Summit. And the interesting thing about this summit is it brings together all the CEOs of all the major European carriers. Low cost, legacy, Ryanair, Lufthansa. Uh, they're all here and they're all here in a sort of non-competitive way because there are key issues that hit them all. And the number one issue, Julia, is how will summer 2020 go after the debacle of last year when it was chaos because airports uh, airports security airlines nobody was fully prepared for the ramp up this year according to Michael O'Leary who is the CEO of Ryanair which is Europe's largest single carrier 2023 will be better I don't think so, but I mean, certainly the unions are exercising what muscle they have, particularly in the run-up to Easter. You know, generally speaking, this summer I think would be materially better than last summer was, where a lot of the airlines and the airports were short-staffed. But it's going to be a very busy summer. The Americans are coming to Europe in their droves because of the strong dollar. We're seeing the return of the Asian traffic beginning to return to Europe. And I think we're going to have a very strong summer, but it's going to be fraught, particularly where the French air traffic controllers are rebelling or revolting. Uh, the point about the French air traffic controllers, he made the point the number of strikes there have been. And the issue, Julia, which is technical but crucial, it's the ability to overfly, if you will, overfly French airspace. If there are problems on the strikes on the ground, why can you not fly over uh, France? Uh, you then add in, for example, the German strikes over the pay uh, and the cost of living in Frankfurt and Munich, and you realise, and of course the British 10-week strike from the passport office, and you start to see it's going to be a difficult year. Mm. Richard, can we have another flyover, please? With the visual of course aid. you may. Uh, oh, I'll get in you. trouble. Oh. Uh, Who's playing is it? Left, heading nicely. Oh, nice. uh, oh I knew you were going to. Don't, 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 don't ask because then I'll have to show the other one and it'll all get very, <laughs> very, very difficult. <laughs> okay. Strategic hand placing. Nicely done. Richard Quest. Thank you for that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Okay. The Washington Post reporting today that the White House wants to get tougher on mid-side financial institutions after the failures of the Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank. The Biden administration reportedly set to demand new regulations on regionals to help bolster customer confidence. All this as the U.S. House gets set to hold new hearings into the banking turmoil today. Rahel Solomon joins me now, struggling to uh, read that, Rahel, half because I'm laughing and half because there seem to be lots of B's and T's in there. Um, what we heard yesterday was three top regulators saying that they wanted to see more stringent regulations on banks that have assets above $100 billion. I think that makes sense in light of what we've seen. But was there any pushback? What more did we hear? Well, it does make sense, right? Because on the one hand, what we saw with this is those regulators uh, execute the systematically risk exception, right? The systemic risk exception, rather. So it's on the one hand, there was a systemic risk. On the other hand, that they were not considered systemically important, which is why they weren't subject to those increased regulations, as you point out. Look, Senator Elizabeth Warren asked each of them pretty pointedly, would you support, do you think we need more stringent regulations? And ultimately, each regulator said yes. Now, this was a two and a half hour hearing, Julia, and yet questions still remain. One of the big questions, of course, is even if SVB 
had been stress tested, which it wasn't, would current stress tests have actually caught this? Because, Julia, as you know, current stress tests as they remain uh, test for things like unemployment spiking 6% to about 10%, for example. Uh, They test for things like market volatility. They test for things like falling GDP. Those were not the primary issues here. Those were not the issues for SVB. As Senator Kennedy of Louisiana Louisiana put it, You didn't test for SVB's problem. On the other hand, there was another question about the timeline of all of this. Julia, as you and I spoke about on yesterday's program, uh, the the Fed said that they essentially were aware that SVB began to have these problems, had these problems as early as late 2021. So if that is the case, why wasn't more done to prevent this? Take a listen to these questions. I hope to learn how the Federal Reserve could know about such risky practices for more than a year and fail to take definitive corrective action. Right, and so that's the other part of this. If you say, actually, no, we did know, actually, we did sound the alarm, we did communicate this to SVB executives, why did this still happen? And so that's still a big question in terms of what happens next. The next hearing on the House uh, set to begin in about 20 minutes. And then, Julia, we know that SVB executives have also been asked to testify. That is expected to happen at a later date. But you can bet there will definitely be fireworks when we hear from that testimony, when we hear from those witnesses. Yeah, absolutely. And um, yet more point, pointing the finger at, uh, at everyone else and their failures. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Rahul Solomon, thank you so much for that. Okay, so to come on first move, chipping away at banking barriers in Africa, one app at a time. I speak with the CEO of Chipper Cash after the break. Welcome back to First Move. Back in 2018, Chipper Cash set out to improve Africa's antiquated banking system and grant more access to the unbanked. Their platform allows customers to transfer money, pay bills and invest in both U.S. stocks and crypto all on their cell phones. The app now has over 5 million users across Africa, including Ghana, Nigeria, Uganda, South Africa and Zambia. And like many startups, Silicon Valley Bank's investment arm was an early investor in Chipper Cash and remains so. CEO Ham Serenjogi said the bank was the only one willing to help with Chipper's first bank account. And after SVB collapsed, the company said their exposure was insignificant and would have no customer impact. And joining us now, Ham Serenjogi, CEO of Chipper Cash. Wow, Ham, you've had a busy time, to say the least. Talk to me about operations today, the conversations that you're having with customers. It's a tough time anyway. SVB was a complication. Julia, it's great to be back with you today. Thank you for having me. Um, and, and indeed, it's been a, a, an eventful and busy time. And it, you know, it always is for us in, in our world. I think one thing that um, probably goes unsaid is that um, there's always a lot of stuff that we're working on and developments, and uh, we're constantly having to navigate interesting challenges. So, you know, the last 12 months, six months have definitely been no different in that sense, but they've been unique. Um, I think, you know, one thing to say is that uh, um, for Chipper, our mission and, you know, our long-term vision for what we're building hasn't changed. And if anything, I think times like this underscore the importance of what we're building. When there's you know stress in the global economy, uh, people rely on our products and services more. Uh, they support each other more. They they need tools to store their money safely. They need tools to transfer their money safely. Uh, and now with you know features that we've been building and rolling out the last couple of months, like our cards and our stocks products, 
even more so, interacting with the global economy is of, is of, is of uh, the highest importance. So I think, you know, this times further underscore the importance of what we're building. Um, and, you know, with regards to uh, what happened with SVB, uh, as I said in my statement, fortunately for Chippa, there was very little impact. And, and I think more importantly, um, SVB's capital arm, which is the one that invested in Chippa, mm. was largely unaffected. So that's a very different pool of capital from SVB, the bank, which is the one that collapsed. Uh, and so for us, even with the people that we deal with at SVB, those relationships are still as strong uh, and as vibrant as ever. So, you know, fortunately, we, we, we came out on the right end of, of, of what happened uh, with SVB. Yeah, and I think it's important when, uh, for people to understand that when an investor invests, they give you the money. So you've got the money, you've taken the money, and, and that's a good thing. Exactly. And I think sometimes yeah. that gets forgotten in this conversation too. Um, to your point, I think... Very important. Yeah, starting in 2019, you, you've been battle-tested. Pandemic and then banking volatility. Um, we'll dig into the business and growth, but just at a top level, does it change the conversation that you're having with investors about profitability, about choices over expansion and how quickly. I mean, any of this, not just specifically SVB, but just the environment we're in today and a a greater discernment, I think, over um, where money goes and how willing people are to provide it. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. I I think you put it quite well. Uh, You know, we started with the pandemic very early on in our company's history and we had to deal with that. And that was a huge unknown. And then obviously now this, you know, global economic crisis that we're going through right now. And, you know, there's a war going on at the same time. There's just a lot of uncertainty and, you know, fear in the world right now. And those are all things we have to navigate as well. Um, I think, generally speaking, because our vision and our mission remains unchanged and all the investors that we have who are highly supportive subscribe to that vision and that mission, there's really very little change in the long-term prognosis and the subscription of of what we're doing. Um, I think what really changes in times like this, more than anything, is that, and not just for Chippa, but for everyone, there's probably more emphasis on efficiency and uh, having to do more with less. So if there is a adjustment in how we think about our business or how we think about where we allocate our resources in the short term, it's more focused on, all right, what do we do now with tighter resources in terms of less capital in the markets, um, probably less fundraising activity going on across the industry? How do we make sure that our business is operating as efficiently as possible? And what are the most important areas that we need to double down on and focus on as a business? And we've done that work ourselves as a business. We're constantly trying to do it. But I think in times like this, the bar is raised a little higher on everyone to make Mm. sure that every single dollar of investment that the company is making is going on the most important things. So you'll tend to see less aggressiveness in terms of expansion and more focus on doubling down on products that have been launched and that are scaling and growing quite strongly. Uh, And that's quite true for us as well as a business. Yeah, and we've seen that across the tech sector, and it's probably quite healthy, to be frank. Um, since it's we great. last, I agree. yeah, since we last spoke to you, you've launched the Chipper Card, I believe, in Uganda and Nigeria, which is allowing um, users to access cash without a bank account. I just wonder very quickly, how did that fare during the recent um, sort of physical cash crunch in Nigeria that we saw in, in the lead up to the elections? Yeah, this is something I'm very excited to talk about because last time I spoke with you about maybe a year ago. Uh, it was heavily around the core P2P product. Um, and we've since expanded our platform quite a bit in terms of our product offering. The card is one of the most exciting products that we've launched. And the reason why it's important, in addition to the cash crunch and people relying on physical cash less, is that it also allows a lot of our users to interact with the online economy and in a way that they previously couldn't. One thing that I think people take for granted, generally speaking, in the West 
is your options to buy something online or via um, an online uh, process are plentiful. Uh, but if you live in countries where most of your money is either held in a mobile money account or in cash, something as simple as paying for a Netflix subscription or Spotify or buying something online via Amazon isn't as easy. And so our card allows people to take their money that they have in mobile money or in chipper and spend it online in a very easy and safe way. And that product has grown quite strongly. We've issued over 600,000 cards across Africa today. We're, we're the largest virtual card issuer in Africa today, and we're aiming to issue very many more and launch in more markets. Uh, but it's been exciting to see how that product has really enabled people to do very important things, you know, paying for you know, your uh, deposit for college or paying for your SAT or um, uh, test preparation fees or buying a ticket to travel somewhere. Um, things that are crucial for everyday life that would otherwise be very, very difficult. Um, that product has enabled people to, to, to be able to interact with the online economy uh, in a very easy way. Um, I have about a minute left. You publish analytics on all of these things. So in one minute, you have to ask me why women aren't using this card. And actually, it's the same with crypto um, investments on the platform. That The ratio of men using your products to women is way higher. What's going on there? Do you need more targeted advertising towards towards women? I think it's 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 definitely something that the whole industry has to focus on. We we yeah. do a lot of work in educating and trying to onboard as many women as possible. Um, it's a reflection of what's on the ground right now. Unfortunately, there's more men than women that have access to formal services like Chipper and Mobile Money. But it's an area that we're working aggressively on and trying to invest aggressively into to make sure that we have a platform that everyone can use and benefit from. So more work to do on that. And I'm excited to come back and tell you more about our progress in that area next time we catch up. Perfect. Yes, we'll focus on the business purely, I promise. But we were just showing the um, we were showing some of the stats there and it's quite fascinating. So, yes, plenty to work on, Ham. Great to chat to you, the CEO of Chipper Cash there. Thank you. Welcome back to First Move. King Charles making his first state visit since taking the throne. Just moments ago, the King and Queen Consort Camilla met German President Frank Walter Steinmeier to kick off their three-day state visit. Later, the royal couple will be the guests of honour at a state banquet. Smiles and handshakes there. And finally, there's a good reason this Australian is smiling. In his hands is an enormous gold nugget worth around 160,000 US dollars. Wowzers. It weighs nearly five kilograms and was discovered in the state of Victoria in an area known as the Golden Triangle, well named. Darren Camp, who valued it and who you can see there, says the once-in-a-lifetime discovery was found using an $800 gold detector. Now that is an investment and that's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. You can search for at CNN. Connect the World with Becky Anderson is up next. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max. 
a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.